This morning we're going to look at John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Drew read from the text this morning. The title of the sermon is, Jesus Cleans the Temple of Irreverence. Jesus Cleans the Temple of Irreverence. Now as you know, we've been going through John the last few weeks. John's goal in the gospel is to declare Jesus Christ as God is revealed through his earthly ministry. In reality, the earthly work of Jesus Christ is revealed every single day throughout this world, the world we live in today. Not just by redeemed sinners made saints by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, but in the most pagan of pagan places in the world, the earthly work and ministry of Jesus Christ is seen by everybody every day. His work is displayed on the walls of our homes, in the walls of corporations, within embassies, nightclubs, the nightly news, on your computer screens. Our lives and our schedules are subject to Christ's earthly visit. Everywhere and anywhere that the date is displayed. Today is June 17th. 2007 A.D. A.D., Anno Domini, Latin, for in the year of our Lord. All of history balances on the birth of Jesus Christ. God who became a man. We look at anything historically, we dated either B.C. or A.D. The centerpiece of time, Jesus Christ, determines history. John's objective in this gospel is to declare Jesus Christ as God through that earthly visit. And thus far we've seen living testimonies of John the Baptist to Christ's first disciples to the testimony of the Lord's first sign miracle in the wedding at Cana. So from the testimony of the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove to John the Baptist crying in the wilderness, to the disciples themselves recognizing him as Messiah, and then turning water to wine, all declare the deity of Jesus Christ. So John's presenting his case, his case of Christ's deity, through all of these witnesses. And this morning we will see his deity revealed, here it is, through an act of judgment through an act of judgment. Now many become confused at this point because they don't understand the holiness of God. Therefore they take issue with an outraged Jesus. But God's love and grace cannot be a matter of discussion until one's sin is clearly understood. People look at Jesus as meek and mild, gentle, loving Jesus. He's all love. God is all love. God loves us all. How often do you hear that? But love and grace is not a matter of discussion until your sin is understood. Period. The message of love and grace cannot be comprehended until sinful, irreverent complacency towards God is exposed. And if you're a true Christian here this morning, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Amen? 
you know what I'm talking about because when God enabled you to believe, He revealed to you clearly your depravity, your spiritual ruin, your incapability of standing in the presence of Holy God. He revealed that to you by His grace when He called you to Himself. He breathed life into you. He, he, he resides in you and He has given you an understanding as to the level of His holiness which brought you to your knees in repentance. Amen? And now you have life in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you understand that. And we rejoice in that together. But many people who have yet to embrace, repent, and believe on Christ seek to convince themselves that God accepts them just as they are. All the while attempting to justify their Christless immoral lifestyle. And the sad reality is that these people have not come face to face with their own sin. They don't see their need. They don't see their depravity. They don't see it as depravity. And they won't see it as depravity until God reveals it to them by His grace. They don't see their need for the Savior. So they dabble in unbiblical forms of thinking. Jesus is just alright with me, so therefore I'm just alright with Jesus. Jesus loves everybody. That's the mentality. They don't understand that they were at war with God. They also don't understand that God is at war with them. In Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 7 says, The mind that is sent on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it what? It cannot. Those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. You see, the overflowing general love that God has for fallen man doesn't save anyone. Now, if you're in Christ, God has given you special revelation. He's bestowed upon you His special, unique love that He doesn't have for the whole world. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love God has bestowed upon us that we should be called what? Children of God. God has a general love for the world, there's no doubt about it. But that general grace, that overflowing abundant grace that he has generally for the world does not save the world. It's the specific, unique, unique, life-transforming, personal, intimate love that Christ has that enables people to recognize their depravity and enables them to see the glorious holiness of Almighty God. And those who are able to repent and believe are a product of God's supernatural act of grace. Bestowing grace upon the sinner. Now it is true, without a doubt, that throughout the New Testament, Jesus is the messenger and the embodiment of the love of God, no doubt. And that love has been manifest in and through the life of the believer. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among who? Us. Those are true believers. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And as Ryan stated earlier, propitiation means satisfaction. The wrath of a holy God was satisfied is he unleashed that wrath upon his son. Propitiation, satisfaction. 
Jesus was the satisfying, sacrificial lamb of the Father. Therefore, you stand right in the sight of God today if you're in Christ. And that is what we rejoice over. Amen? That is why we are gathered here rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus Christ, giving him the praise and adoration that he himself, he alone deserves. People who have a skewed view of God's love will get disheveled when they think of Jesus expressing rage. But this morning, we will witness through this narrative in John chapter 2 an intolerant expression of rage through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through His voice and through His actions, we'll see rage, intolerance. If this culture thinks that Christians are intolerant, oh, that's because our master-in-chief is intolerant. Amen? There is but one way. And there are very few who make it their end by. His righteous anger is unleashed, as we'll see this morning. And His righteous anger is unleashed and has been unleashed and will be unleashed when God is not given the reverence that is owed to Him alone. Pe- people who glibly approach God in their unrepentant sin thinking that He'll accept them just as they are, first of all, they're deceived. They do not recognize the majesty of God. Therefore, they cannot revere God. Christians who flippantly approach God reveal that they in their heart have irreverence for God. Professing Christians who remain unmoved when they're confronted with Scripture regarding their doctrinal error, their carnal behaviors, or their sinful lifestyle reveal irreverence for God. Those who join together in corporate worship in order to be seen or draw attention to themselves reveal their irreverence for God. In those Sunday, those whose Sunday worship agenda is anything but to lift up the name of Jesus Christ in praise, worship, and exaltation of His Word reveal their irreverence for God. This narrative in no way portrays the peaceful, tender, gentle Jesus that most have grown comfortable with. But it reveals for us the holy indignation of Jesus Christ, which many Christians don't even want to talk about. Because a lot of people have a hard time reconciling the love and the grace of God with His wrath. And those who have issue, take issue with or don't understand it, typically don't understand absolute holiness. God is totally set apart unto himself, perfectly holy. They don't understand that. Jesus cleansing the temple is crucial in our understanding the truth about Jesus Christ. And this narrative has profound implications for our lives today. So my prayer is this morning that we'll walk out of here with a greater understanding of the magnificence of Almighty God is revealed through the act of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself this morning. God does not and will not overlook the irreverent with indifference. 
lot of people have this picture in their head that, you know, God is this old man upstairs, you know, the big man upstairs with the gray hair and the long beard, and simply pats complacent Christians upon their little heads. You know, with a little smile like a grandfather would have. Oh, crazy little kid. God does not look upon irreverence like that whatsoever. The Bible says that all things were created for God's glory and therefore they are meant to give Him glory. Especially someone who is saved by His gracious, gracious gift of grace. Especially. May we never step into the presence of Almighty God with a flippant mindset. God demands glory from everything He created. The Bible clearly states. Especially those in whom He's recreated spiritual life. Amen? Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath, what? Let's say it. Praise the Lord. Everything that has breath. Proper praise and worship of God gives glory to God. Proper praise and worship of God begins with a reverent heart. A heart of humility. We read about it in many passages of Scripture. We'll just share a few this morning. Psalm 89, verse 7 says, God is greatly to be feared in the, se- the assembly of who? The saints. And to be held in reverence by all those around him. Martin Luther said that the natural man cannot fear God perfectly. The natural man are those who are unbelievers. Before you were saved, you were a natural man or woman. You were not capable of properly and rightly fearing God. The true believers have been enabled to fear God because they understand the elevation of His holiness, the person of Almighty God. Rudolf Otto, another German theologian from the 1900s, said, and I quote, The natural man is quite unable even to shudder or feel horror in the real sense of the word. End quote. Holy fear is God-given knowledge to God's people. And it enables men and women to reverence God's authority, obey His commandments, and hate and shun all forms of evil. That's a sign of salvation. One who reverences God's authority, obeys His commandments, hates and and shuns all forms of evil, reveal someone who has been granted saving grace. Fear and reverence for Almighty God is the beginning principle of wisdom. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a feature of the people in whom God delights. A feature within those in whom God delights Himself. Psalm 147.11 The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him in those who hope in His steadfast love. Now in the New Testament, the picture of a loving and forgiving God is without doubt greatly emphasized. Amen? It is all about grace. It is all about grace. Nevertheless, a reverent fear must remain for Almighty God. Because the awesomeness of God is unchanging. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we must understand as believers that there is a day of judgment to be met. 
Now, we will not be judged for our sin. I hope we all understand that. If you're in Christ, you will never be judged for your sin. But we will be judged at the judgment known as the Bema Seat of reward for what we do or suffer loss for that which we don't do as vessels of the Holy One. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, For we, believers, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You know, godly fear is also reflected in your attitude towards fellow Christians. If you remember our study in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You have trouble submitting to church leadership? Do you have trouble submitting to one another? Do you have trouble submitting to one another at home? Perhaps you don't revere Almighty God. Take it back home to that place, the temple of the Spirit. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire there's your New Testament God he is no different he is a consuming fire perfectly radically set apart and holy that's the God we serve reverence gives the idea of downcast eyes as one would be bashful around other men but towards God. It's, an, it's the idea of modesty in awe, caution in the presence of Almighty God. So much arrogance in the church today. People prostituting the grace of God. But this morning, we're going to observe through our Lord's judgment in the temple five points of reverence. And what, what does that look like for our lives? That's the question. The first point that we'll look at is that this, in bulletin, this uh, outline is in your bulletin. Number one, reverence for God pursues the meaningful worship of God. Number two, reverence for God recognizes irreverence toward God. Number three, reverence for God is proactive in reproving irreverence for God. Four, Reverence for God boldly teaches that all things are for the glory of God. Fifth and finally, reverence for God, here it is, must anticipate resistance from those who may or may not know God. You revere God like this, as we'll see this morning, you likely will receive resistance from those who even know God, let alone those who don't. I'm telling you. So let's begin by looking at the passion of our Lord regarding reverence of God the Father. Verse 12. After this, meaning the wedding at Cana and Jesus turning water to wine, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So here we have a transitional point. Since Jesus and his family stayed only for a few days, it indicates that it wasn't long before that it was time to leave to celebrate Passover. Capernaum was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
and it eventually became Jesus' home base for ministry. This was home camp, home base. And his brothers were likely with him in order to travel to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And that leads us to point one. Reverence for God pursues the meaningful worship of God. Verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now Passover was an annual festival that celebrated, uh, was celebrated every spring. Retelling the story of Israel's departure from the bondage of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. You all know the story. The families of Israel were spared the death of their eldest as they sacrificed the lamb and put blood on the doorpost and the lentil. God sent the angel of death over each home of the Egyptians and the oldest child, the oldest um, sibling of every home, died. But as God's angel of death came about those homes where the blood was he passed over those homes if you're in Christ today you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ therefore the judgment of almighty God passes over you you'll never face judgment for your sin Passover was a great celebration and over the centuries Passover had become this great festival where Jewish males 12 years and up would travel to Jerusalem for this great celebration and participate in the sacrifice of animals, a symbolic meal, as Jesus did with his disciples in the upper room. And reflective study of Israel's salvation. So this is a big deal. Now, even though they came from the north, typically here we are north of Tijuana. If we went to Tijuana, we'd say we're going down to Tijuana. If we were in L.A., we said we're going down to San Diego. But no matter what direction you would travel when you headed towards Jerusalem, you always see that it says they went up to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, regardless of the direction, stood higher in elevation than Galilee. And historically, Ju Jerusalem was the capital city and also known as the holy city. So no matter what direction you came, whenever you traveled to Jerusalem, you would be heading up to Jerusalem. And here they were heading up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now Passover brought this great spirit of expectancy, great anticipation. And typically in the spring prior to Passover, people would shut begin to shut down basically in preparation for this, much like we do at Christmas. Right right after Thanksgiving, what does everyone begin to prepare for? <laughs> the next month, December 25th. Right? You work a little bit less, you begin to anticipate this great celebration. Unfortunately, many of us begin to get stressed, come a little bit unraveled. But that's the idea. Great anticipation, great month of celebration, preparation for that celebration. And although Jerusalem wasn't that large, during Passover, up to two and a quarter million people would gather for this great celebration. Imagine two and, two and a quarter million people pressing in upon Jerusalem, pressing in towards the temple for this great celebration of God passing over Israel in his judgment. Now we know that the ministry of Jesus, as we look through the Gospels, that Jesus deliberately violated man-made traditions. 
religious or not. If they were man-made, Jesus would violate them. But anything that God ordained, any statute, any feast, any command, Jesus perfectly upheld. That's why you sit here today, perfectly righteous, because Jesus perfectly upheld the law in all of God's ordinances. But when it came to man's traditions, he violated him. God certainly didn't have to bow to man what he caused to be tradition. He simply upheld what God demanded and commanded from the beginning. But there still was a godly remnant in Israel that would come into Jerusalem, savor Passover, understanding the depth of its reality with reverent hearts to worship God. Not just to gather in for the sake of the celebration itself, but for the purpose of it, the cause of it, the author of it, to worship Him. God always has had His remnant. Amen? Out of the 82 or whatever percent it is of America who says they're the church, they're not all the church. But within the visible church, or those who profess to be, there's the invisible church, those that truly are. God knows who they are. And if you're in Christ, you know you're His. And unfortunately, there's other people who are deceived into thinking they're His, and in reality, they're not. <clears throat> this temple that they would all converge upon was intended for worship and prayer of Almighty God. Now, if you've ever seen a map of the temple grounds, you would see the temple's massive thing. You would have the temple grounds, the temple buildings surrounding the temple. You would have the inner court for the Jews, the outer court for the Gentiles, the, the, the court of the priests. You would have the holy place, and then you would have the holy of holies. This is where they were going. The, sacri the sacrifice would be made. And the sacrifice was not a means whereby God could be approached, but rather as a means where covenant relationships that God established could be maintained or repaired. The sacrificial lamb, the animals that would be sacrificed, would atone for their sins in a manner that pointed to something greater than the sacrifice of the animal. The fulfillment was standing right there in the temple, as we'll see in a minute. The fulfillment of the all. All of the shadows, all of those foreshadowings pointed forward to something greater and it was the Lamb of God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, going all the way back to Leviticus, the worshiper would draw near to the sanctuary. The beast would be killed. If you remember, the priest would lay its hands on it, on its head, and it was an indication of substitution on behalf of the worshiper. Just as Christ is your substitutionary sacrifice which pleased the Father. So from the time of its inception, the sacrificial system this was not to be vague or meaningless and to become simply a ritual. It was not to be that. But that's exactly what it became. God was not and is not ever to be approached in a cavalier manner. Ever. God's holiness and glory were the issue here. Holiness refers to God's inner nature. His glory is an outward manifestation of his inner nature. When Saul was traveling on the road to Damascus with documents in hand, 
to arrest and persecute those of the way, which were Christians, Christ met him. Christ was seeking him. Christ found him. He was not seeking God. God in his sovereignty met him. And <clears throat> Saul was met with, met with the glory of God because of the inner nature of the risen one, Jesus Christ. In the inner nature of the inner one, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, is holiness. And that holiness manifested itself in glory so that he saw the glory of God manifest which was greater than the, noon, the, the, the sun at noon. He was blinded for three days. And he went on to be Paul. God transformed his life. God called his people to be holy. Be holy for I am holy. So what God meant was that his people were to share in the characteristics that were similar to his. Just as we in Christ are called to work, walk worthy of the manner in which we're called. We're called to salvation and we're called to walk and live as though we're saved. That's a process that's called sanctification. In, a, in abiding by God's law, these Jews, worshiping him, the people sanctified themselves in reverence for the only true and holy God, you see. And because only God is inherently holy, we all know that, the people aren't holy. God calls us holy because He's holy and He has propitiated or placed upon our account His righteousness. Therefore, we're called holy or we're called saints of God. All because of His righteousness granted to us. So, because only God is inherently holy, a person or sacrifice is holy only as it stands in relationship to Him. So, the nation of Israel was set apart as holy unto God. And the, pl the closer a person or a thing gets to God, the holier it becomes. And the holier it must be. Because if it's not, it will be consumed by the radiated glory produced by the very holiness of God, you see. Now, thinking in those terms ought to bring a person to pray and worship God with absolute reverence for God. Amen? <clears throat> that is what should have been going on, but that is not what was going on. To revere God correctly, one must have a right view of God as to his absolute holiness. So in order to pursue God in a rightful, worshipful manner, one must begin with theology proper. God first. He's holy, amen? Not man. Man does not come first. It's not me, I, and we. It's God. And we subject ourselves to his holiness and to his authority. So the pursuit of meaningful worship reveals true reverence for God. And may we pursue Him with a worship that's meaningful. A product of reverence in our hearts. Amen? A product of reverence. And if someone has reverence in their heart like that, they will also be able to recognize their reverence toward God. And that's point number two. 
Reverence for God recognizes irreverence toward God. See, the ones that were supposed to be representing God in the temple were anything but reverent. They were supposed to be representatives of God. The people coming and seeking worship of God were being misled. And that's why, as we'll see in a moment, that Jesus turned the place upside down. Now, as these people would come from all miles, all lengths and distances, all regions, they would come to provide an animal sacrifice. Many traveled with their own, but many were not able to travel with their own sacrifice. So provision was made for them. And God's representatives had animals there, and then you had the money changers there, and they would make provision for the animal sacrificed in that they could come and purchase a lamb or an ox or whatever. But they began to make money in the name of God here. Became a business, became a racket. The temple was intended for worship and prayer and it became a house of merchandise. Let that be a warning, amen? So worshipers that came from a distance would, would utilize the convenience of purchasing animals on site and then the convenience for those traveling long distance became a business for these religious hypocrites making money certainly hand over fist you know many churches are no longer places of worship and reverence to almighty God but they're a place of convenience for people who want their ears tickled They want to accommodate every fleshful desire of those coming through the door so they fill them with what they want to hear instead of revering Almighty God and upholding the truth of His Word. They may not have started out that way, but because of compromise and complacency and no one having the discerning eye to call them out of the compromise that they were violating Scripture, you see what happens. It used to be that they set up these animal booths and the money changers down in the Kidron Valley so that everyone that was coming upon Jerusalem could make the exchange by the animal and then come up to the temple and you didn't have all this chaos going on, you see? But whatever year that started, complacency set in. No one took a stand to say, this is the holy temple of Almighty God for worship and prayer. You know, an illustration of this today, there's this church on the East Coast. Somebody sent me this little video deal. And on their Sunday, they have American Idol Sunday. So they have the American Idol logo in the backdrop. would be like behind me right here. And then they allow the, the, the congregation to select certain secular songs for some clown in the audience to come up and sing. So they had some guy with his cowboy giddy-up hat and garb on, and he came up and did his little number. And then they would vote, just like they do on the TV. And then one of the songs they selected was Brick House. You know, she's a brick house. And this is going on in church that profess Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, and then the pastor gets up and says, Hey, you, you know, you're the guys that selected the song. Well, you're the guy in leadership, buddy. Repent. And revere God. Ironic, isn't it? American idol. Idol. So anyway, 
You have these livestock sellers. You have another group of money exchangers over here on the other side. These people would come from their lands and they would have their own currency. The money changers would have to pay the temple tax with Jewish coinage, so they would have to make exchange for these people. And of course, they would inflate the rate, just like if you go on vacation, if you travel abroad, you know, they're going to make their money on you. So you're always on the lookout for the best exchange rate. So they would pay the temple tax, pocket the rest, they'd go over, they'd purchase their animals, and so on. And uh, you got a circus going on at this point. D.A. Carson comments on this, and he says, and I quote, Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there's the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there's noisy commerce. End quote. Now at this point, I imagine Jesus entering town, he immediately recognizes this radical irreverence. And this is nothing that he didn't expect. Jesus had been to Passover his entire life from childhood. But didn't turn things upside down until he initiated his public ministry. So this is his first time to the temple since his public ministry kicked off. So I imagine him walking in, scanning the place over, looking at all this radical irreverence for Almighty God the Father, hypocrites all over the place, and he begins to unleash his wrath. Amazing. I love it. I love it. You know, for any Christian to be able to recognize irreverence, compromised Christianity, or the marketing of the church in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, prostituting His name, the mind, the heart, and the life of the believer must be filled with knowledge of the Holy Scripture. Amen? You've got to know the Word of God before you can call this stuff out. You can't just roll into church, you know, no Bible, you know, and think that you, you, this stuff is going to be implanted in you. First of all, you have to have the Spirit of God, which means you must be a child of God. Because if you're not a child of God, you will never internalize the truth of the living Word of God. And therefore, you will never be able to recognize where there's irreverence, where compromise is beginning to set in. But when it is, point number three, Reverence for God is proactive in reproving irreverence toward God. To reprove means to convict or to rebuke. Verse 15. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changer's money and overturned the tables. Hmm. God demands that we give him praise, reverence, and glory. That's what he demands. You think Jesus had a passion regarding reverence for the Father? Come on, somebody. Oh, my goodness. God will tolerate nothing less than absolute reverence for himself. He is holy, holy, holy. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you vacation. There's no vacation for being a Christian. When you vacation, you vacation as a Christian because you're a sinner saved by a grace who's on vacation. Amen? Amen? When you drive down the road and you're stuck in traffic, 
You're a Christian who's stuck in traffic. Perhaps getting the one-way sign by many people. You know, notice Jesus didn't come to Passover here with a message of love and compassion. He began by exposing the entire corrupt religious system with theology proper. God comes first. My Father will be glorified. He is holy. He'll tolerate nothing less. Nothing less. Notice how Jesus does this. He does it in a premeditated fashion. Okay? He makes a cord of whips, which means he had to go picking things up in order to make that cord of whips. Probably went over in a corner somewhere, tied these things together perhaps, and then whoosh, perhaps he cracked the floor before he got to business to get some attention. Thought about that all week. How did he begin doing it? What did he do first? Did he yell first? Did he crack the floor? You know? Did he snap some ox on the rear end? Or did he lay it to the back of a man? Because look what he says. Verse 15. He made a cord of whips, a whip of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He drove them all means every kind. In other portions of the New Testament, it refers to all men. So there's tender Jesus for you, very likely laying it to the backs of irreverent men, as well as the animals. This isn't cruelty. This is upholding the reverence for the holiness of the Father. Reverence for Almighty God. Many people attempt to follow a Christ who bears no resemblance to the Jesus of the New Testament. And I'll tell you what, if that's who you follow, you follow an idol. An idol. Because he's been drained of his deity. And as Kent Hughes says, I quote, that Jesus is a weak, good-natured deity whose great aim is to let us off the hook. That's not Jesus of the New Testament. Jesus is indeed meek and mild, Amen. But that must be balanced with the other images of our Lord. You know, you tell Herod that fox. You know, hey, you hypocrites, you bunch of whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You're a, nothing but a brood of vipers. You're a bunch of hirelings. Tender words of the Lord. To many in America, Jesus has become this idol who's been drained of his deity, and the picture of Christ is some hippie cat with his little iPod earphones on, kicked back reading People magazine. That's not Jesus Christ, amen? Now one thing, just so you know, brothers and sisters, this is a church that has great reverence for Almighty God. So this is a message of great exhortation and encouragement for you. You've got to keep the reins on some of the brothers in this church. I'm telling you. Because they have a passionate desire for the holiness of God. So hopefully this will edify you to keep the zeal up. Ladies and gentlemen here, to keep the zeal up. And if you don't have it, repent. If you don't have it, you're maybe perhaps not a believer, so really repent. Fall on your face before the living God today because your Jesus is an idol. It's not the true living God of Scripture. 
We must have a whip, brothers and sisters. And it must be the Word of God. The whip must be the Word. And we must be proactive enough in reproving such mockery of Almighty God. May our hearts become like the courts of the temple during Passover week. Amen? As Jesus responded to the courts of the temple. Not what was going on in them. The authenticity of a Christian's reverence for God simply indicates what you think about God. How much reverence you have for God determines, is, is revealed as how, how you think of God. You know, Jesus entering in like this was prophetic. Turn back, if you will, to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. This is an initial fulfillment of the Messiah to be completely fulfilled at His second coming. But you'll see some familiar verses here that we've covered over the weeks. But we only read the first portion of it. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Who's that? John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and, purifi and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. When one has this type of reverence and he's proactive in reproving it, he will also give himself the point number four. Reverence for God boldly teaches that all things are for the glory of God. So if you're going to reprove somebody, you have to correct them. All scripture is profitable for doctrine. That means correct sound teaching. Reproof correction teaching so the man or woman of God may be fully equipped for every good work so here comes the teaching part look at verse 16 and he said to those who sold doves take these things away do not make my father's house a house of merchandise take them away so Jesus begins to cry out pick the stuff up and get it out of here this is my father's house. There's a sign of deity. No one ever made that statement. This is my father's house. Take them away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Do not prostitute my father's house as a trade market. A lot of pulpit entertainers today prostitute the name of the word of Christ in order to tickle people's ears as I said earlier the people love it they come in mass so they make themselves up more and more teachers like that and 2 Timothy chapter 4 tells us why 2 Timothy 4 2 says preach the word be ready in season and out of season 
convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will, they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you... Be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. There's Paul's words to Timothy. You know, the Westminster Confession of Faith says this, and I quote, The two great pillars upon which the kingdom of Satan is erected and by which it is upheld are ignorance and error. Ignorance and error. The two pillars that hold up the kingdom of Satan Wherever there's ignorance or error, you will discover irreverence and no godly fear. God hates and always will hate the false, fake, irreverent sacrifices of men. The traditions of men, religions throughout the world, religions under the banner of Christianity that are nothing more than tradition, make God sick to his stomach, if he had a stomach. Isaiah 1.11 What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. Now, although God commanded the sacrificial system, it meant nothing without obedience from the heart. Nothing without reverential fear of Almighty God. Nothing without the awe and desire to serve Him and Him alone. It's all outward. It's all religion. It becomes religion instead of relationship, you see. Psalm 51, verse 16. David, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. A broken spirit, contrite heart, God will not despise. That's what he's looking for. That's what he desires. Not tradition. Not irreverent religion. Jesus said, I'm the Son of God. He declares his deity here. This is my Father's house. It shall not be a house of merchandise. This is another sign of Christ's deity. Very clear. So he drives out this multitude single-handedly. I can imagine what the disciples were doing at this time. Other than what we're going to read about in a second, they must have been pulling their hair out going, Oh, my goodness! There's two cleansings of the temple. Jesus does this twice. He does it here in the beginning of his ministry, and then the synoptic gospels reveal for us that he did it towards the end of his ministry. In some brilliant scholar, no one knows who it is that said this, but they said this, if Jesus had cleansed the temple once, the authorities would never have let him get away with it again. Jesus went to Passover two or three times in between his first and second visits, you see. And we don't read of him doing this in between. And the reality is, he didn't get away with it a second time. Now granted, his time had come, no doubt. But by cleansing the temple the second time, it only stimulated their fervent desire to have him murdered. 
And if you remember at the trial, he's the one that said, tear down this temple in three days he'll raise it up, right? We'll look at that next week. Sorry. Jesus cleansed the temple twice. They would not turn and repent. Forty years later, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed to nothing and there's never been a sacrifice made since. This was the beginning of the end of the sacrificial system because the ultimate fulfillment of the sacrificial system was present. Ripping open the rib cage of religious hypocrisy, exposing the stench of their mediocrity, of their complacency. Amen? See, the people that remain steeped in ignorance or error, we must educate them with truth, brothers and sisters. We will uphold the truth of God here and we will train up the army of believers to know what the truth says and knows, know what it means by what it says so that our other Christian brothers and sisters or those who profess Christ throughout this culture, throughout the land, wherever and whoever God puts before you, and they're steeped in error or they're steeped in ignorance, we must confront this in love with the whip of the word, amen? We're responsible to do such a thing. So may we lovingly be bold enough to say this. Jesus said, take these things out of my Father's house. May we be bold enough to say, take these things, these methods, these beliefs, these forms of supposed worship, this erroneous teaching, this watered-down gospel and the exaltation of man, take them out of my Father's house because they do not rightly represent Him. We have to instruct those that are drowning in this ignorance and error. They're going under. And when you do that, beware of point number five. Reverence for God must anticipate resistance from those who may or may not know God. Verse 17. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. This is what Drew read from this morning in the opening of the service. This is a quote from King David who was zealous for God. And people hated him for it. Because of his zeal to uphold the holiness of God, David was persecuted. Psalm 69.9 Because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. See, it's the man of God who passionately desires that God be honored. It's the man of God or the woman of God whose zeal is revealed for God's word by rightly exalting his word. And when a man of God or a woman of God is zealous for the truth of God and that God be rightly revered by all who profess his name, the man of God or the woman of God may become viewed as an enemy. I'm telling you. Become an enemy almost. Jesus stood in the midst of this religious hypocrisy and he turned the place upside down. Turning tables over, change flying everywhere, chasing animals out, chasing men out. Amazing. Get these doves out of here. He could have kicked the cages. He didn't. 
He didn't open them up and let them fly away, the livelihood of these men. There's mercy there, but he's making a point, the holiness of Almighty God. The holiness of God Almighty. And then all of a sudden, notice, the disciples remembered. They remembered what? Scripture. They said, zeal for our houses, zeal for your houses eat me up. And they must have been thinking, if they did this to David, what are they going to do to him? Because what David did is nothing in comparison to what the Lord Jesus Christ did in their presence that they bore witness of, you see. You know, when I first started here, there's a lot of people who are no longer here. A lot of those people that are no longer here wanted to have meetings with me. Now, I had a lot of meetings with people when I first started here, and a lot of those meetings were very good, they were very rich, and they were based on something of substance. Other meetings totally took me by surprise. Two of them were the fact that people had issue that I, that I wore a tie when I preached the Word of God. And that I put a pulpit here as a place of authority. So I just listened. And I said, well, let me tell you, I said, the reason I did that is because I want to represent the authority of God's Word. Therefore, I'm going to dress for the occasion on the Lord's Day. doesn't mean you have to dress like this, but I choose on the Lord's Day, Sunday morning, when the church gathers, to dress is when I present the Word of God. Because to me, that's as great as standing in the White House. Or wherever else you dress up. The pulpit is the place of authority that the Word of God sits here to come down above the people. Not me above the people, the Word of God above the people. Then one of those people responded, well, that's rather conservative and offensive. I said, exactly. <laughs> it's to show reverence for Almighty God. That's why. That's why. I think a lot of people, not a lot, some people within that group that left had this hopeful expectation. I'd walk around here with a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops, one arm crossed across, around my chest, holding my elbow, my other hand scratching my chin, going, imagine, if you will, for a moment, a new radical way of presenting Jesus to a postmodern world. We must have zeal for the holy reverence of Almighty God. But as we conclude, as we zealously imitate Christ, we must be ever mindful. And I'll first quote John Calvin on this. I quote, Each individual should imitate Christ since the example of the head gives a general lesson for the whole body as Paul teaches in Romans 15.3. So as far as we can, let us not allow the sacred temple of God to be polluted in any way. At the same time, we must all beware of transgressing the bounds of our calling. In common with the Son of God, we should all be zealous, but it is not for all of us to take a whip and correct vices with our hands, for the same power has not been given to us, nor have we been entrusted with the same office." End quote. This zeal ought to be displayed throughout the Christian community with caution. Make sure you're filled with the Word of God. Make sure your motives are spirit-led. 
Make sure you're not living off the zeal of somebody else. Amen? Therefore, I'll, I'll quote J.C. Ryle. Zeal is great. I love zeal in Christians. I love zeal. And like I said, there's some people in this church who, I, oh, I just love them so much. They have so much zeal. It's like, you just got to kind of hold their shirt tail a little bit. Because they're ready to go to war for truth. And unfortunately, when you go in that manner, sometimes you take out the innocent. Ryle says this, and I quote, Admire zeal. Seek after zeal. Encourage zeal. But see that your own zeal is true. See that the zeal which you admire in others is a zeal based on knowledge. A zeal from right motives. A zeal that can bring chapter and verse out of the Bible. Not your philosophies. Not tradition. Chapter and verse. Contextual clarity. May that be the foundation. Any zeal but this is nothing but a deceiving fire. It is not ignited by the Holy Spirit. End quote. Now each one of us can certainly begin with, as we ought, the temple of the Spirit that we are. Amen? Let the whip of the Lord begin there. Let Him clean house there. And then we'll all have our motives in place. Amen? So may our whip be the Word of God. And may we scourge with precision the soul of self and the soul of man who profess Christ, who prostitute His Word. And turn it into a house of merchandise. May your voice be heard in honor of the Father and in the name of the Son and only, only, get this, only in the power of the Holy Spirit. Zeal without knowledge, oh my goodness. It's like that cartoon character that used to spin around. The Australian deal, what is that? Tasmanian devil. <laughs> Out of control. But let us begin in home. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You own nothing. You own nothing. You are here by grace. And you are a steward of everything that God has granted you. All of us, we are stewards of the Most High. All a gift of Almighty God. You know, Jesus saves all kinds of people, right? If we've looked at some of the backgrounds of some of us in here, He's brought us from all backgrounds of life. Amen? But one thing's for certain. When you come to Christ, be assured He's not going to leave you unchanged. If someone remains unchanged and they profess Christ, they're not a Christian. I would greatly wager if I were a betting man. Someone who is in Christ, he will not settle for clutter in the house, compromise, dishonesty, and as someone has said, racketeering of your soul. Anything that defiles or corrupts the temple of our body, he's going to purge out. And as he does the purging in us, May we pursue true worship of Almighty God with true reverence in our heart. Then you'll be able to recognize irreverence, reprove irreverence, teach against irreverence, and then you'll likely receive persecution for such zeal. 
And then all the glory can go to God. Because then it will be revealed that you don't see Jesus as your hippie buddy. But you see him as holy, holy, holy. Because he is holy. And that's why you're holy. If you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, tell him that you know you're not holy. Confess to him that you are a sinner. Confess to him that you've been steeped if the case is in religion your entire life and you've never come to true saving faith. Today, call on Jesus Christ. Plead with him to reveal to you his grace and his mercy to take you out of a religious mindset and into a relational love that is never ending by the good news of Jesus Christ. That he came to die for all those who would ever believe. Place your belief in him today. Call on Christ so that you can have the assurance that you're covered by the blood of Christ. The holy atoning work of Almighty God through his Son Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God the Father. Amen. And if you need help in knowing how to come to Jesus Christ, you come talk to me after the service. And I'd love to assist you. Happy Father's Day. If you don't have a dad, praise God for the Heavenly Father you do have. Praise God also for the body of believers that you have. We can be united together as one, united in love, upholding one another, encouraging one another, and reproving one another. Amen? Out of reverent honor and awe for Almighty God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you with my beloved brothers and sisters here this morning on this Father's Day and thank you for your fathering of us adopting us into your family, providing for us an atonement that pleased you. Because Christ, the satisfaction of your wrath, laid down in our place. And because of the faith that you've granted us to believe, we, in turn, receive and have been granted His righteousness so that we can be looked at as holy. And because we are holy in Christ, Father, I pray that You would keep forever on the forefront of our minds by the power of the Spirit an understanding of what it is to have reverential fear and awe of You, our Almighty God. And I pray that the holiness of You, Almighty God, would be revealed through the brotherly love that we have within this body that we would have a zeal that would be never-ending to confront error, to confront ignorance, to confront error over and over again. So much error. And may we do it, Lord, never in our own fleshful strength, but by Your Spirit, all for Your glory, so that the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will be exalted in us and through us, all for You. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we all pray and say together, Amen. Amen. God bless you.